Hey, so glad you're here tonight, church family. Before we deep dive into this, let me, uh, uh, as I was driving home last week, I, uh, when I do this anytime I preach or teach, I began to think and overthink and over overthink through everything that just came out of my mouth. And I realized I said something that there was no intention of negativity to, but I thought, man, I hope since, since I said it as an example and then I critiqued it, I, it maybe it came off. So I want to be really clear. I, am, I have no beef with Tim LaHaye, and I have no problem with the Left Behind series, okay? Uh, I, I used that as an example last week about the Antichrist being assassinated because I, I, I by and large, probably most of us are familiar with uh, Tim LaHaye's narrative through Left Behind and, and, and walking through the end times, uh, not to in any way critique, because obviously I told you the more I think and process uh, through Scripture does does Satan have the power to resurrect life? I struggle with that because that power to give life in Scripture is given to one and one alone, the one who is life, God Almighty. So just want to be clear, uh, I respect Tim LaHaye. There's some things I see slightly different than Tim LaHaye, but just understand if I use that as an example, it is not because I'm trying to critique Tim or left behind or anything like that. I just figure most of us, most of you in the rooms I've gotten to know you, you've been believers long enough, you're very familiar with that series. And in American evangelical life, that was a very prominent uh, book series that was really the culmination of, 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 of uh, 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 a premillennial dispensational uh, eschatology that, that started much earlier in, in terms of the study Bibles and things like that. So just want to be clear uh, two, because um, also, by the way, Tim LaHaye was one of the first big-name um, American evangelicals who called out the, the, the problem with believers no longer having a biblical worldview and the battle for the mind, and he did it decades ago. So just to, I want to be clear, don't ever want to uh, sound like I'm disparaging of someone that I'm clearly not. Now, I, I remind you as we walk through this passage tonight, because especially the last half of Revelation 13, it's going to bring up at least three different things that are very prominent, uh, if you've grown up in American church life, very prominent end time things that, that there is no shortage of speculation. And that's not even just in the last hundred years, just in church history. In fact, uh, the, mark of, uh, the mark of the beast and the number 666, the church father Irenaeus back in the second century urged believers to not have fruitless speculation because of how it made Christianity look foolish. So this is not anything new. There's, there are some challenging things, and I just want to remind everybody, I'm great if you have an opinion. Uh, your opinion may be, may be absolutely right. I just want you to understand my standpoint, and I've shared this before. My goal is to help us understand what is exceedingly clear in the text, because I have to stand and give an account before that for God, and I'm not really scared of your opinion, but I am very scared to stand before God and Him say, why did you say something so dumb to my people? So I will own it if it's my speculation, but just know if I go, well, why didn't Pastor get fully into that? It, it's not because I think there's this or that or the other. I just, I'm going to try to anchor us to what is absolutely clear because there's some things that just aren't clear in here, and they won't be fully clear until they come into fruition, and then they will, we'll all go, ah, so-and-so was right, or no one was right, one of the two. Now, remember where we're at, Revelation 13, Revelation 13, 1 through 10, we see, well, Revelation 12, we meet the, the red dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, the devil himself, who deceives the nations, who opposes God's Messiah, who persecutes God's people. He has been cast out due to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, his place of accusation, of accusing God's people before God day and night. He's been cast out from that place in heaven. It says now he is down on the earth. Uh, heaven rejoices. The earth, uh, the earth is... Um, is to be aware. He knows he has a limited window. He knows there's a fixed end date on what time he has left to cause destruction. And you see him persecute God's people in, in the end of 12. And then you come into chapter 13, and, this, and Satan there is standing on the seashore. You see a beast coming up out of the sea, and that beast is, is that first beast out of the sea uh, essentially the symbolism there, the, the imagery. He's coming up out of the chaos, the depravity of humanity, He's um, coming up out of the sea, and in his appearance, in the beast's appearance, he, he both appears looking like 
Satan's appearance. Well, that's fitting because the beast is Satan's earthly representative, as we see throughout the passage. In addition, there's clear callbacks to Daniel chapter 7 and, and the beast that is there. And we, we meet this beast, and, and this beast is, is, this first beast is the one that most of us are most familiar as labeling uh, the Antichrist, 1 John 2, the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, David's little, or uh, not David, Daniel's little horn, Daniel chapter 7. Most of that tends to go with the first beast, beast who, uh, who seems boast to represent certainly a coming kingdom, but, but specifically the, the ruler of that worldwide kingdom who is empowered and given authority from Satan himself. And we, we found that a uh, th- this beast, it was given. It was he was allowed to open his mouth and speak blasphemies against God and God's people. He was given the right to make war with the saints. He was uh, seemingly given authority over the entire earth and the earth. Everyone whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone who is not a true and actual believer, worships this beast, this wicked beast. And you ask the question, well, how how do how does it get there? And, and I used some very specific things last week to to help us realize, I mean, we understand from what the rest of Scripture says about this beast that he will will specifically target the Jews, the Jewish people, after the breaking of the covenant in the middle of the seven years of tribulation. That's Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel uh, 11. And and I drew and said, you, you look at the world today, certainly we've got people who are who are applauding October 7th and the attack in Israel. There are some who are seeking to uh, um, minimize it. And then obviously there's a good chunk of the world that goes what happened was horrific. You've got a multitude of opinions. Here we've arrived at the day where, where there's, there's one worldwide opinion. It's good. Praise the one who did it. That's, I mean, that's the reality of how, how wicked and all this stuff. It says the world worships the beast. This is the kind of place that we're living in. So how do we get there? Well, it's because there's, there's, a, there's a third member of Satan's unholy parody trinity, and we see this member tonight. Look with me, Revelation 13, verse 11. He says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had, or this beast had, two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, let's pause there for a second. So all of a sudden, we now see a second beast, one who is like the other in that uh, he is part of Satan's triumvirate here, but, but one who's different. The first beast came out of the sea. This beast comes out of the earth. Now, much has been made about what does it mean he comes out of the earth. Let me give you some what, what I mean by that. Uh, some would say, well, the sea of the beginning of the chapter, that's the Gentile people. To come out of the land is a reference to the land of Israel, so this beast must be a Jew. Certainly, we mentioned, if you look at the list of the 12 tribes, as they're mentioned early in Revelation, there's a tribe missing, the tribe of Dan, who in, in Genesis, in the blessings that are in the words of Jacob, when he talked about Dan, he talked about Dan as the tribe of the serpent. Uh, you see, if you study the Old Testament, it's Dan is the first of the tribes to really lead the people of God into idolatry. Is, is, is it possible that that's what it's possible the flip side of that is the, the, the function of the second beast, as we'll see, is to promote the worship and fulfill the war agenda of the first beast, which is to eradicate the Jews. And it would seem kind of strange for the one eradicating the Jews to be a Jew. That would seem somewhat contradictory in there. So it's possible it could be that. The others have said um, uh, that... Uh, Others have given different things in terms of uh, the land. Uh, simply put, is it, it, the point is to say that the first beast is, is coming out of the chaos of humanity and, is, uh, and then the second beast, this false prophet, is simply a creature of the earth rather than a creature of heaven, that this is just another human. It, it's possible. There, there's some interesting, and I've got to do some more study on it because it's fascinating, and a lot of, if you go read the Old Testament, there's a lot of imagery of, uh, you'll see the term dragon, serpent, leviathan, almost used interchangeably to describe a satanic power. And sometimes those titles are even used to describe a kingdom like Egypt or a ruler like Pharaoh who's a persecuting God's people. Well, in addition, beyond that, if you look at a lot of ancient cultures that surrounded Israel, 
In many of their ancient myths, the same imagery exists for whatever devil creature of their religion. Now, I'm not saying that they were true. They're not true, but it's possible little grains of truth still stuck around. And what's interesting is there's a second creature in some of those things, a land creature. You see this illustrated in Job. God shows Job what? Leviathan and behemoth, a water and a land. So some have said there's some possible connections in there. Simply put, here's what we do need to be clear about. Part of the key that they come, one comes from the sea, one comes from the earth, at minimum is to tell us they're two distinct beings. They're two distinct persons. The beast from the sea is not also the beast from the land. You've got a beast from the sea, you've got a beast from the land. They're distinct, they're separate, they're unique in their identity, uh, and they're unique in their function. The first beast bears the authority and wages the rule, wages war and rules. We'll see the second beast uses the authority from the first beast to lead people back to worship the first beast. He fulfills a different function. Now, the second beast, so that it comes out of the earth, the second beast, so listen how it's described. Two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. Now it's interesting imagery. How many horns do lambs have? None. Two horns like lamb. Well, you remember, lamb, uh, the horns is, is a, a symbolism in Scripture. Uh, sometimes it means a king or ruler, but it can also simply just mean power. So this, this being, he has a level of power. He doesn't have as much power as the first beast, who has ten horns, but he's, he's got two horns. So there's some power there that this beast uh, possesses, like a lamb. Now, maybe we're, the temptation would be, ah, so this is, this is a counterfeit Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Well, could be. That could be some of the imagery there. Uh, I think maybe digging in a little bit further, it's not so much like a lamb in the sense of Jesus, because really the first beast, the Antichrist, that's the parody of Jesus. That's the false Jesus. What it is, what did Jesus say, Matthew chapter 7, what did he warn us to look for? Wolves in sheep's clothing. So this beast appears warm, cuddly, fuzzy, nice, attractive. Not some warmongering conqueror, but a gatherer of people with brilliant ideas whose words are savvy. He gives the appearance of being innocent and kind and a lamb, yet it says he speaks like a dragon. Well, who is the dragon? Satan. How does Satan speak? with smooth words of deception and manipulation that twist truth all to bring worship to himself. So here you have a picture. In fact, this beast, you'll know by another name. Elsewhere in Revelation, he's called the false prophet. The false prophet. Intellectually, people are attracted to him. Emotionally, people are drawn by his appealing style and they're convinced by his amazing signs. So they will voluntarily submit and obey. This is the nature of this beast. Now look at verse 12 with me. He exercises the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs. Now pause there for a second. Now I'll pause in the middle of the sentence. Here's what I want to draw attention to. This second beast has authority that is given to him by the first beast. Well, the first beast, where does he get his authority? Well, Satan gave it to him. Do you see the unholy parody of the Trinity? God grants his authority to the Son who promised to send the Spirit. What does this second beast do? He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. What is the primary job of the Holy Spirit in relation to Jesus? It's not to get people to worship the Holy Spirit. It's to bring people to conviction to worship Jesus. Not only that, who is the one who empowers believers? When you look at the book of Acts and it says that they perform signs and wonders, what does it say before? They were filled with the Spirit. What you're seeing in the false prophet is, the, is it's, it's a parody. We believe in a triune God, one God, one being, 
Three distinct, co-equal, separate, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Spirit, for sure at least in the course of human history, in creation, redemption, and restoration, they they all have certain roles that they play and fulfill. Well, look, what does Satan do? Well, Satan wants to be like the Father, and he has his Antichrist like the Son, and he sends his false prophet like the Holy Spirit to convince people to worship the beast. The beast who, and it reminds us, whose fatal wound was healed. That in some way, the first beast, the Antichrist, whether it's through, like like is in the Left Behind books, an actual assassination and resurrection, whether it's whether it's referring to an aspect of the Antichrist kingdom, whether it seems like he was killed and, and healed, uh, there, there is a, remember last week, there is a false resurrection that's designed to make the first beast look as if he's the Messiah. And here, coming on the backside, here is the, the one who's like the false Holy Spirit to point people that way. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven and to the earth and to the presence of men. By the way, uh, there's, there's multiple things that's a reference to. We, we already saw several chapters earlier that God sends two witnesses to the world to testify what's going on, to point people to God, and they call down fire from heaven. So there's a parody of those two witnesses. Not only that, but when did, when did fire, who, who called down fire from heaven? Elijah, the prophet, which when you go look at Malachi chapter four, verses five and six says that, Before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah the prophet will return. Here you have Satan twisting even the word of God to send a false Elijah calling down fire from heaven before the day of the Lord. Not only that, but in ties of this person parroting the Holy Spirit, when else do you see fire come down from heaven? Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes down, fire I just give you all these examples to see, watch what is taking place. It is a massive deception. It is a parody of imitation. These great signs and the language there he performs means that it's not just the false prophet doesn't just perform a sign one time. He is continually performing signs and and, and things that are are amazing and seem seem to affirm what he is saying to the world. It says in verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, that being the first beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword but has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would, would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again, more parallels. Who is the one who, who is God-breathed, who breathes the breath of life? It's the Holy Spirit. And here the parody of the Holy Spirit says that he inspires the people of the world, that being the lost men and women of the world, to create an, an image of the first beast, of the Antichrist, and in some parodying way gives life to this image. Now listen, there is tons of thought and wonder on what does it mean that, that the false prophet gives life so that it seems as if even the image uh, speaks and moves. There's some who would tell you in ancient culture this is true. Uh, there, there was magicians who would use uh, ventriloquism to make it seem as if an idol was speaking. So again, it's, it's deception. Could be that's the, the background for the imagery there. Uh, I've seen things on the flip side of that saying uh, um, modern uses of AI might be what's in view here. Could be. I tell you, I, again, I struggle with the idea that the, the false prophet actually really does give real life to an animate object. Again, just on the background of in Scripture, part of what distinguishes God from any rest of creation is God and God alone is the giver of life. Now, that's just giving background. The, the point of the matter is, again, he is, he is fulfilling a wicked parody of what the Holy Spirit does. Because notice in all of this, Honestly, the, the, the things it describes the false prophet doing flat out are, are some ways more impressive than what it describes the Antichrist doing. But do you notice that the false prophet isn't getting people to worship him? The false prophet is getting people to worship the Antichrist. 
which we already know from the prior part of the passage, the worship of the Antichrist is actually worship of Satan. And it says this image. Now, the image is fascinating. And there's, there's, there's different wonders on what is the nature of... Um, what is the nature of the image? What's interesting to me, again, it's, it's been really, uh, the Lord, only the Lord could have timed it this way for, me, for us to have walked through Revelation after Daniel. That was not the intention on my part. But instantly when I read this, because so much of this chapter, especially this chapter, sits on the backdrop of Daniel, what's the image remind you of? Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3, who set up an image. Ironically, an image... Um, let me make sure I say it right so that I don't lose. If I misquote it, then it will all be for nothing. But Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image and all must bow down and worship or, or else what? Be killed? All must worship this image and otherwise the image kills them? The image which was 60 cubits and 6 cubits. That'll ring a bell in a second. There's a lot of background. Here's what's interesting to me about this. We say, what's the nature of this image? Is it a literal idol image? Uh, what is the nature of bowing down to it? And so let me just preface it. This is, this is somewhat my just musing, okay? So don't take this as thus saith the Lord, but this is as I've been processing through this passage um, when you, if you remember back to Daniel 3, Daniel 3 was not as simple as just Nebuchadnezzar. Even the description of the image would not describe a perfect image of Nebuchadnezzar as if Nebuchadnezzar is just really proud and wants everyone to say he's God. If you remember back when we walked through that this summer, at the heart of Daniel 3 uh, really is Nebuchadnezzar using this image to get all of his subjects to pledge unconditional loyalty to his rule. Now, there's a religious backdrop to it, but there's also a a warped, in a negative sense, a negative sense of nationalism and patriotism and loyalty to the state. So it's knowing that backdrop and having worked through that this summer, it is interesting to me to wonder what exactly is this image and does this image, since it's so similar to Daniel 3, does it involve some form of absolute pledge of loyalty, not just to some image, but, but quite literally to the rule of the Antichrist and his state? So that practically speaking, what it's going to look like for people to worship this image is an unwavering loyalty to whatever the Antichrist asks and will. And obviously all of that's like, well, yeah, it is that, but, but it's just interesting to see that imagery of, of the image set on the backdrop of Daniel chapter 3, knowing how much of Revelation sits on Daniel. So, this is, so they create this image. Interesting enough, it says the image, the image causes as many don't worship the beast to the killed, which makes me wonder again if the image is less an actual picture of an idol and think more of like the flag of a nation who in the life of the nation puts to death those who won't submit. Again, that is my musing. Let me own that. You get before the Lord and say, well, God, pastor said, he will say, pastor said it was his opinion and he was wrong. And so you should have listened that it was his opinion and not mine. <clears throat> but here's what it does say. It says, he causes... All the small and all the great and all the rich and all the poor and all the freemen and all the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now pause for a second here. Here's what it says. One, notice the different classes, and, and, it, and there specifically has the article, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free man, the slave. It's twofold there. One, no human being is exempt from this. That, the, the use of the article and all the blank, all the blank, all the blank, that is describing every possible classification of human being on the earth. So when it comes to this mark, this isn't a great majority are confronted with getting the mark or not. Everybody's going to be confronted with getting the mark or not. Not only that, but the fact that it names all these classes means, by and large, the entire world takes the mark. 
which means the entire world is in direct rebellion to God. And I say, well, what's the mark? It mentions the mark on your forehead or on your, your right hand. Now, there's really, there's kind of, well, I guess there's three basic trains of thought. One of those trains is the whole thing is, is, is symbolic anyway, so it doesn't matter head or forehead. That's one, we're not, in, we're not looking at that. There's two over here. One would be very literal. The mark will be some kind of mark on the forehead or the hand. Or one is literal but understands the, the spiritual significance behind it. Here's what I mean. There are a million theories as to what the mark is. There are. What can we know for sure it is? Well, just like there is a parody of the Trinity, what just a few chapters prior, and what will, interestingly enough, in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, what will happen? A few chapters prior, it said that the 144,000 were sealed by God's mark on their forehead. And we would understand in that case, not a literal mark on the forehead, but that's a spiritual Spiritually, they are sealed. They are names written in. They're not capitulating. There's no apostasy here. In the very next chapter, we're told those who were sealed were sealed specifically with the name of Jesus on their forehead. So when I say, could it be something spiritual? What, what it, at minimum, the mark is, it is a parody. If those who are gods are given a seal spiritually that says this one is gods, the enemy can't touch him, then all of the people who are worshiping the enemy, they are given his mark, which it says is the name of the beast or the number of his name. It's a parody of God's sealing of his people. So having said that, at minimum, the mark is something of a spiritual nature. Now, you say, well, does that mean it's not? Well, it means it may not be literally on the, the, the forehead or the hand. I say, well, why would they use the forehead or hand imagery? Do you remember what God told God's people to do with his word? To bind his word to their heads and hand. It's a parody of God's commands to his people. Where if you even see really devout Orthodox Jews of today, even back in Jesus' day, they put those boxes and they write God's word and they put them on their forehead or their hand. Now that said, it could very well be a literal mark. We've seen all sorts of things. It could be that the mark is some kind of a tattoo. We're, we're not foreign to that. There's, did, did we not tattoo every prisoner of World War? Did, did the Nazis not tattoo all their prisoners? Could be a tattoo. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff today. We, we've already seen it. I, I've watched people who've got their chip walk through the grocery store and wipe their hand, and it it does. Could it be those things? And very literally, yes, it could. But I told you, I don't like to just speculate, and so I want to resist the urge to speculate. And let me just encourage all of us to resist specifically with the mark speculating. And here is why. If we're really honest, Scripture tells us some things clear about the mark, but Scripture doesn't lay out, and the mark will look like a, a goldfish tattoo on the forehead. That doesn't say that. What it does say very clearly is that everybody on the earth who is not Christ's accepts the mark. So we need to be careful today as things happen in our world and we go, oh, is that the mark? Is that the mark? Is that the mark? Is that the... We need to be careful. One, if you are in Christ and there's not a rapture prior to the tribulation, Scripture's already told you if you're in Jesus, you won't be getting the mark because you're going to know it's the mark and you're not falling for it. Which inversely means if we speculate on things that are the mark... And a believer does, you know, if you get Apple's, Apple's chip in your hand, that's the mark of the Antichrist. Could be. But if it's not, and a believer takes, he says, I think that's really cool. I don't want to carry around a wallet anymore. Give me the chip. We've just accused that believer of not being a believer because only people who take the mark are lost. So we just need to be cautious. Pay attention, absolutely. Vigilant, yes. 
cautious with what we accuse because the reality, now the flip side is this, if the rapture takes place before the tribulation, you don't need to be speculating on the mark anyways because you're not going to be here when it happens. So speculation is fruitless. Instead, let's see it for what it is. At minimum, it is Satan's claiming of people who have completely and totally sold out their heart and loyalty to worship him alone. It's a parody of the Lord. It's a mockery of the Lord. The implication, well, let me, I'll come back to that in a second. The rest of what it says, look with me. It says, either the name of the beast or the number of his name, here is wisdom, so use great wisdom and caution. Let, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, again, just like there's a million ideas of what the mark of the beast is, there may be a million and a half ideas on what the reality of what does 666 mean. There's various schools of thought. There's what the ancients would call gematra, where every letter of the alphabet is, is given a number, and, and literally the, name spe- the number spells out a person's name. Uh, the challenge with that is, it, let me read you how, how one person, how one person uh, put it. Um, Here's how one person formulated the three rules that commentators use for for telling you what 666 the name is. First, if the proper name by itself will not add to it, add a title to the proper name. Second, if the sum of it can't be found in Greek, try Hebrew, and if it doesn't work in Hebrew, try Latin. And third, don't be particular about the exact spelling of the name, and if you're willing to be lax on those three, you can get that to spell anything you want it to. Now, you may be one who says, because there are many commentators who are far smarter than me that think that the likely idea is 666 spells out the name Nero. And, and there was a belief in prior, right prior to John's day that Nero, who committed suicide, that he was going to come back to life and take back the Roman Empire. It's possible that's the background. And if it is, then it's simply, a, a, part of it is a way of saying that there, the Antichrist is one like Nero who is wicked, who is savage, who to somebody with a sane mind would recognize the insanity of the man. That is possible. What is maybe a little bit more likely or, or more palatable to understand is, is uh, 666. The number six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. God created six days, rested on the seventh, God has ascribed the number seven. Six falls short of seven, always, just as man falls short always of God. So to say 666 is a way of saying not just is a man who's fallen short, but is a reflection of the fullness of the depravity of mankind who has fallen short. Not only that, but it is also an affirmation that no matter how powerful you, you if, if, we, if we were to be a fly on the wall when all this is taking place, we watch the Antichrist amount more power than you've ever seen a human being. We watch, I mean, realize how much has to happen in our world. Even, oh, the times are near. Certainly the times are near today than they were yesterday. That's a logical fact. Certainly, there's some clear things that seem to indicate prophecy-wise. A hundred years ago, there was no geopolitical Israel, and there kind of seems the need to be one for some of the... Pro- now, the- But understand how really wild this is. Right now in our world, you have real Christians, and you have people who act like real Christians but aren't, but are part of the church for whatever those reasons may be. You've got... I mean, let's just, take, let's just take Islam. Islam's not one size fits all. In fact, there are sects of Islam that take the, the denominational differences of the church world. And, and I mean, it's been a long time since a denomination went to physical war with another denomination. But there's sects of Islam, both who worship Allah, who would kill each other over the differences of their theology. And that's inside of Islam, who you would never imagine an, it, it, someone from Islam and someone from Hinduism and someone from Buddhism and someone who even claims Christianity all bowing down and worshiping the same God. Yet that's what happens here. You are going to see the Antichrist amounts, amass 
power over the whole world. You're going to see a false prophet do signs and wonders that tickle ears and amaze eyes, and you're going to see the world worship a single person in a way that's unparalleled. Right? Uh, there's, um, let me just give you an example. One of the most worshipped people in the world today is Taylor Swift. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Taylor Swift, but I just give you an example. As massive as her following is, they asked the young man who's currently quarterbacking the Buffalo Bills who plays the Chiefs Sunday, and if you're not following stuff, let me just clue you in. The biggest news in the world right now to teeny boppers is that Taylor Swift dates a guy on the Chiefs. They said, do you like Taylor Swift? And he said, no, nah, I'm not really a fan. I just listen to country music. My point is this. As big as somebody like a Taylor Swift and Oprah, as think about the people that are wor- worships, there's plenty of people that don't give a rip. It's gonna be unparalleled the power and worship of the Antichrist. And so it may be that 666 is not just saying that the Antichrist is the ultimate expression of the depravity and fallenness of mankind, but it is also a reminder that both the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the day are just dust. They're human. They are not divine. They're not even spirit like Satan. They're just man. Fallen. So, how does all this then go together? We recognize this mark. I I didn't mention it yet, but if you go back, you look, you have to have this mark in order to engage in the economy, which means if, For the believers living at that time and moment, there will be no way to engage in the economy legally in terms of the eyes of the state. I mean, I'm assuming we know that there's believers who make it to the return of Jesus and they haven't all starved to death, so there's some way they've gotten food, whether it's living off the land and in the wilderness. We saw in the previous chapter in 11 that God prepares a place in the wilderness for the woman, uh, at minimum, the believing remnant of Israel. So what, what do we do with all of this. Just, just real quick, these are simple applications. Um, one, we need to be certain that our name is written in the book of life and we're sealed by God. That's the key in here. If your name's written in the book of life, if you've been saved by grace through faith, if you are truly God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, you don't worship the beast. Instead, you suffer for it. And you'll either suffer and endure till the return of Jesus, or you'll suffer until you're killed and the Lord takes you home. We need to be clear. When I say that, I mentioned last week, listen, Scripture's clear. You can't lose. If you're saved, you can't lose salvation. Otherwise, your misdeeds, I mean, it says clearly in Scripture, he is faithful even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. When you come to saving faith in Christ, you no longer stand before God. Jesus stands before God on your behalf, and you stand in Jesus. Now you say, well, but, but we know from the rest of Scripture and even the emphasis of the false prophet, there, there, there is considerable evidence that the false prophet may very well come out of the quote-unquote Christian church. And I know some who would take it further and tell you exactly who they think he is as a very specific leader of a portion of the church. And that's not even just an individual's opinion, that's a widespread opinion. It says in Scripture, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, Paul mentions it in 2 Thessalonians 2, that there will be a falling, a seeming falling away from the faith. How do we make sense of that? I thought that person was saved, and there they are worshiping the beast. Well, this is the reality. Jesus told us, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Some of those who say, Lord, Lord, are even going to have done signs in his name, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus, I shared last week, the parable of the seed. You got seed that goes on four different, kinds of, four different kinds of ground. Only one kind of ground is salvific, the good soil that accepts the seed and it takes root and gives birth fruit. 
One of those soils, the seed doesn't do anything. It just bounces off and taken away by the enemy. But two of those soils, the seed gives the appearance of life for a time before the right circumstances come and expose that it was never real in the first place. And the reality is, anytime we live in a culture that is not murderously hostile to Christianity, we're going to have people in church who don't really know Jesus, but know the right words and sometimes act like they do. This is not something new. It's why we have to be discerning. You can know if your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life because the, the ultimate sign Scripture says you're saved is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God who seals you. So we need to be sure of our salvation and rest in that surety because that's our hope. We need to be discerning. Leads naturally into it. We need to be discerning. If there's a reality of a false prophet, remember, the Antichrist hasn't arisen yet. Whether you believe in a pre-trib or a post-trib rapture, we, we know for sure the Antichrist hadn't arisen yet. There's been no seven-year peace agreement. Come to, We're not there yet. What we do know is John tells us in the first John that even though the Antichrist, capital A, hasn't come, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. There are many false prophets, both from other religions and even inside of the quote-unquote Christian church today. And we had better be discerning. The Holy Spirit never speaks in contradiction to the word He authored. And God gave us a word that is exceedingly clear on the vast majority of everything. Sometimes it's just so clear we don't like what it'll cost us. But that doesn't mean we get to change it. We need to be discerning against false prophets inside and outside the church. We need to be discerning against false religion. Whether that be foreign religion, we are living in a pluralistic, in fact, you've heard me talk about worldview before, that the overwhelming majority of Americans don't actually have a single worldview. They're, they're syncretists, meaning they take a little bit of this worldview, a little bit of that worldview, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion. Most young people today believe in karma, but most young people today aren't Hindu. We live in a pluralistic society. And we better be discerning from the influences of false religion. Not just false organized religion, it could be false religion of nationalism, false religion of secularism. There's a lot of different ways false religion can come up. Here's the real reality, the mark of the beast. We're not told exclusively what the mark is, but every time it comes up, it is always connected as the expression of absolute worship of Satan and Satan's beast. The reality is at the heart of everything taking place in the war of eternity is worship. Those of God, we worship Him alone. Those of the world may worship themselves now. They may worship this false God or this false God, but there's a coming a day where they're all worship one, Satan's Antichrist and Satan himself. So we need to be clear that we do not worship anything other than God, and we worship Him at His Word. We need to be discerning. We need to be courageous. To know, love, and follow Jesus Christ today is to stand apart. Always has been. Always will be. Interesting, do you notice in the passage, you either have the mark or you don't. There's no third option. Now, we're not living in that extreme of circumstances today. So sometimes we can get lax and come up with third options. There's no third option. There's no neutrality. You either belong to Jesus and worship Jesus, or you belong to the world and you don't worship Jesus. And in our lives as believers, there's no option for, well, I'm going to follow Jesus but dabble in some other stuff too. And it's just one or the other. There's no neutrality. The reality is we've got to be courageous in biblical courage. Look back with me at verse uh, 10. It says, Here is the perseverance of the saint, the perseverance and the faith of the saints, or better put, in light of this information, this is what must be. The saints must persevere and display faith. We must possess a faithful endurance, meaning we're courageous to be faithful and steadfast in living out truth. It also means we need to have an enduring faith that in the midst of a world that is called a harlot in Babylon, 
we remain steadfast in believing God at his word, even when it seems his word isn't coming true. And I'll elaborate more on that Sunday. But I remember, and I'm not trying to be cheesy as we close out here. We live in a while. I remember back up to 2011, first semester of seminary. I'm working at my first church. Game six, bottom of the ninth, three-two count, two outs. The Rangers are about to win the World Series. I'm living in the ghetto of Fort Worth, an old Air Force military barracks that creek right behind the bus stop. Well, I'm not with my, I call dad. Oh, this is going to be so exciting. Dad and I will be on the phone together. This is going to be great. And then our right fielder decided that he didn't even remember his little league skills and didn't catch a fly ball that a little leaguer could have caught. Of course, the rest of the story, heartbreak. They lose that game. They lose the next game. And they just go on a decline from there. Now, I realize, here's why I'm telling you this, in the difference of enduring faith to believe what God says even when it's not true. We live in a world, because I've used this example many times, hope in Scripture is not how we use hope. And for many years, I've said, we use hope like this. Man, I, I hope the Rangers win the World Series this year. Wishful thinking. Well, I realize I can't use that anymore because they actually did it this year. I got to change my illustration. Uh, because that is the truth. I am pumped the Rangers won the World Series. But there's no guarantee. There was no word. There was no. And so in the midst of things not happening, you just go up oh, another year. I remember a couple years ago, they got rid of the old stadium. You know you're a bad team when your biggest promotion for the year is about celebrating the retirement of your stadium. Because we live in a world where there's a lot of hard things. And when it comes to God's word, it can be tempting to begin to have my faith and trust corroded because it seems like God's word isn't coming true. It seems like wickedness is winning. By the way, there's going to come a day where it seems like wickedness is winning way worse than today. And here's what we have to understand is there, and we're going to look at it Sunday, there is coming the moment when all of God's righteous saints, human beings, and all of God's angels together let out an explosion of praise unmatched by any celebration in this world because God's justice has come in his every word fulfilled. So we better endure in doing what is right, but we won't endure in doing what is right if we don't endure in believing what he says, even when it seems like it's not happening. Because the number of the beast is only 666, a man. Our God wins every time, and he's already won. So, Excited to hit Revelation 19 Sunday. This is the last night of formal Wednesday night Bible study. Next week, we're really excited to have, uh, she grew up here as Sarah Hamilton here to share. Normally, she shares with our, uh, our adult Sunday school groups on Sunday morning, but the timing of her visit didn't work. So I really encourage you to be here next week as we hear an update from Kiribo uh, Orphanage, formerly Rafiki Orphanage there in Uganda. She's going to give a full update with pictures, and it's going to be an exciting time. Be here. Encourage others to come. I'm excited to hear as we support her and uh, have supported and continue to support her. So we will have Wednesday night Bible study next week, but it'll be very missions focused. So tonight we'll, we'll, we'll wrap with a Revelation 13 for the end of tonight, and we will pick up when, uh, when we come back in January with Revelation 14, and then Sunday morning we're going to start a shared last week. We're going to on Sunday mornings take about six or seven weeks. We're going to walk through the closing, uh, the closing four chapters of Revelation about eternity. We're going to do it together on Sunday morning, um, and I'm excited, looking forward to it. So uh, let me, we got two minutes till seven. I know there's a choir party, so we'll wrap it seven. Let me just give this before I pray. Is there any question someone's, I've just really messed you up tonight, and you got a question you're curious about pertaining to tonight? I'll give you a chance to, to ask. Well, I can come over there and answer a thousand questions, or you can ask one now, and then I can come answer 999 questions. 
As long as it's not 666 questions, we're good. Anything? Dana. Okay. Uh, I don't remember where I heard this from, but uh, there was the speculation, I would say, that the, uh, the death is of the Antichrist is a death. A person ceases to exist on a mortal plane. But they are brought back more like a zombie. That is, they're animated, but they are not alive. Yeah, and I think actually... Who's going uh, to uh, come up and say, you're just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just, you're just Satan in there. Um, obviously, nobody of the world would say that. Uh, that is actually, I think, after having a conversation last week, how LaHaye portrays it in Left Behind. It is, listen, it is entirely possible. My, again, my struggle with it is that would be the only in- inference and in, the only instance in all of Scripture that a dead body is inhabited by essentially a demon and going around as if live. Demons have, in Scripture, they inhabit people, but they're living people whose spirits are still in the body. The other part that I struggle with about if it's a true death in, in Satan, the only way Satan could resurrect is if God allowed. Because the other struggle with that is if a human being dies, remember, hell is not Satan's kingdom. It's God's prison, for lack of a better term. So that means if the Antichrist died, his soul would go stand before God in judgment, and somehow that would mean Satan has the power to pull his soul out of hell back into his body. Well, that's so again, I'm, you know, that, that's beyond what your question was. That's beyond what your question was. But I'm just simply saying for everybody, that's a further. What if it's a soulless uh, zombie sort of thing? Well, and that's what I say. That would be the single, there's no instance of ever seeing anything like that. So could it be? Yes, I'm not trying to squash it. I just, I'm always cautious of just going, if, if there's not a clear instance already in Scripture, it could be. But I want to be very careful. I just want to be careful. But that is how it's portrayed, and it's, you know, it's a possibility, but it would have to be a possibility, and let me be clear, only because God and his sovereignty allows it to be a possibility, not because Satan possesses a power of life that somehow is in um, legitimate competition with God. Because as we've seen, remember from chapter 12, it's not Satan fighting God, it's Satan fighting Michael. Because no one is on the level of God. So, all right, seven, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for our time tonight. Thank you that you alone are sovereign and true. And Father, may we as your people truly be discerning. Holy Spirit, we need you to fill us with the wisdom of God. And we need you to make our minds sharp. The days are short. The the times are intense. And we as your people, Lord, need to know you and look like you. So Father, fill us with wisdom, and may our faith remain tethered to who you are at your word, even when it seems like your word isn't playing out, because your word is clear how this all ends. There is no question mark. It's not wishful thinking. It is guaranteed. And if it is guaranteed, then to live in true hope is to allow the certainty of what you have told us is coming to drive every last thought, deed, and action today. Father, may we be a people of hope in a world that is hopeless. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.